This is Aaron from the show. First of all, thank you for listening. Once you finish listening to this episode, do us a solid. Go ahead and give us a rating and write a review of the show. This lets us know that we're doing a good job and helps other people find us. And speaking of other people, if you know someone who might enjoy the show, we would love it if you told them about it. We can be found at gttgp.com. There's tons of stuff on there. You can learn more about us. There's an episode guide. And of course, you can find our social media pages where we love geeking out with our listeners. Now, let's get to the good part. Before we start the show, I wanted to say thanks for listening. We want to bring you the best show we can, and sometimes it takes us a week or two to cut, edit, and present you something polished. But if you're the kind of person who wants to hear the long version with no frills and wants it as soon as possible, we're now putting our Ready Player Two episode reviews on Patreon. Pay as much as you think is fair and get access to uncut episodes just hours after we record it. Join our community of gunters at patreon.com forward slash get to the good part, no spaces. Now, on to the show. Welcome back to Get to the Good Part. This is Chris. And this is Aaron. Lohengrin froze, and when her eyes locked onto me, they seemed to double in size. That is how this chapter starts out. And it's interesting because the beginning of this chapter puts Parzival into a a sort of juxtaposition where, you know, the the, the student has become the teacher, right? Where Where now somebody is you know, paying this sort of gross amount of homage to him, you know, dropping to her knee and putting her fist to her chest and saying, my liege, right? As if he, my liege, as, if my he liege. as if he was the king, king of the king, as if he was the king of the kingdom. I guess that makes sense. Well, he kind of is. The ruler of the kingdom. And it's true, he is, but it's just an, an interesting connection to the fact that, you know, they were talking about Parzival and, and you do have that sort of Aetherian legend and then you have this this expression of obedience, if you will, or service to the, this royalty, and it's just it's just it, it, an interesting thing where it wasn't just a high or oh my god fangirling, but like like a very sort of sincere respect of positions there. And this would have been something that Parzival might have done if he had encountered Og or had encountered Halliday in the Oasis once upon a time. So it's just when I first we first well, started this, we just had that interesting position swap that I kind of like. To, to me, it felt like that scene in Ghostbusters Two when the painting first comes alive and <laughs> what is his name, Janish? He just is like <laughs> bowing and saying, "Just oh my lord, yes, the, my, yes, lord, my lord, please. oh they do not know what they say. Yes, c- command me, command me, oh so, lord, tell me what to do for I am lost." So yeah. <laughs> Command me, Lord. It, that's what it felt like to me. Oh, was wow. Just not this. Yeah. Maybe that. I am maybe your humble servant. That's the problem. Parsival's lost his kitten. He, he's suffering Oasis kitten loss. Uh, oh, I can see that. Oh. That kind of has a different. Maybe we should just we should paint it right over here, right over his shoulder. No, 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 no. Get away from the painting. Yeah, that's kind of a more sinister perspective, I feel like. Like, for me, I felt like it was a kind of a, a humbling of a sort, whereas from yours, it seemed more like a, a sinister servitude of a sort. And and really, when, a little bit. when I you mean, think like... of the shit that he's done to people and the kind of rumors that have gone on, I, I guess I could kind of, 
imagine I can see where you're coming from on that. Yeah, kind of just like I submit to you. You know, I, I I'm your guy. Whatever you want. But I don't know. He he didn't pull. It came across very strange to me. He didn't pull the card. Like he he played along. You know, and he said that he was honored to meet her and that kind of thing. So, you know, in the writing of this chapter, at least, Parsifal's not hamming it up too much, you know, and I felt like, like, I was kind of wondering how this was going to happen because we've not really talked about his interaction with people in the Oasis, other than the fact that whenever somebody pisses him off, he ends up zeroing their account, you know, like which is. is very Vigo-esque, I imagine. Probably. <laughs> But at least here we, we're getting either, into a place. Either kills them or turns them into a living god. Yeah, well, you yeah. know. It, it very much reminds me of some of the, the best parts of the first book. Or at least I was hoping we're moving in that direction. Where he has this dialogue uh, between him and H. You know, and, and you really get to feel the dynamics of that friendship through the dialogue. Here, of course, we don't have a relationship just yet. But we do have the beginning and introduction, if you will. So... And let's kind of move into that. Like, where do you want to take this next? Because this chapter itself is really just a walkthrough of him finding or, or coming to the crystal. But um, it, it's it's there aren't what I feel is a lot of references. So why don't you walk us through this? Okay. So they they get sorry to put uh, you on the spot. I, there. I guess you could say, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> um, I'd say that I found a few things interesting about this particular exchange, and I felt it was almost like a mashup of Parzival's conversation, uh, first conversation with Artemis, and his first conversation with Og. Oh, that's interesting. Because because there, uh, you know, like when he was saying things that he probably shouldn't have said to Artemis, you know, like. You know, oh, I, I read your blog every day, and you know how he was trying to make sure he didn't cite the exact, you know, date and title of a particular entry. You know, I think it was about the, oh, I forget which one it is now. Man, I haven't read that in a, in a while. But um, no, I I remember he was trying to he 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 was trying to show his appreciation of Artemis, but not seem overly like a um, awkward. Overly too Awkward, into her, right? Like or, it's, or it's, stalkerish. It's, it's a degree of machismo yeah. that even if you're like totally head over heels for someone, that you still got to kind of pull off this. Eh, I don't care, whatever. You know, let's yeah. hang out. And then or there not. was the whole like whatever. But then it, it reminded me about his conversation with Og right before the final battle when he was talking about how like you know he read all these books about you know him and Halliday. And, you know, there was just that one thing that, you know, wasn't clear. And, like, you know, she was saying, like, I've read all these books about you, including your autobiography, which I guess that we should presume that that's the content of Ready Player One. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So she, so she's read Ready she's, Player she's One. She's seen the so. movie. Right, right. <laughs> if Lohengrin's seen the movie, right, <laughs> and also read the book. She's confused. I wonder which one she thinks is better. <laughs> well, either way, it's safe to say that she is obsessed with him, much in the way that he was obsessed with with um, Artie in with the Artemis, in the first yeah. book, and and even even I mean, so, when they first met in the the D and D dungeon, 
So, yeah, it, I mean, it's kind of I mean, interesting. I mean, Lundgren's basically admitting to kind of crushing on him somewhat. Yeah, I mean, and the difference being here is where there are parts where he was just thinking it. She's actually saying it, and then she's hitting herself in the forehead for kind of, you know, stupid, 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 right? I could imagine exactly. her saying, she doesn't say it in the book, but she, you know, just kind of hitting yourself in the forehead. Stupid, stupid, no. You know, it's, it's that kind but, of thing. Yeah. And then there's the whole, the the turning off, like having the having your console turn off your true emotions in that filter, right. which was a similar thing that we had in, in the first book. And I love how they call you it. Know, uh, it, it, it was very real, reminiscent rolling to me. And, real. You know, that, I think that's why, like, yeah, rolling real. That kind of puts you yourself put the on the edge. Call it. Yeah. You know, whereas the adults are a little bit smarter as to get to, to prevent themselves from kind of giving away all of the cards per se that, you know, they're rolling real, as real as they can be in the Oasis. You know, that embracing the Oasis as as a an equal reality and not holding anything back. And I like that. I think I think I would probably roll real. That's harder to say than you'd think. Roll real. Rolling real. R and R. Rolling real. <laughs> yeah. I'm really rolling. No. But you know, he refers back to the fact anyway. that, that her nervousness reminded him of himself earlier on. So that that's that's pretty cool. And um it's again we're starting to we're starting to unwrap uh this new relationship. And I don't want to ask, but I, I want to know, but I don't want to know. I can't know right yet, but I'm kind of wondering if this turns into a an alternative relationship. You know, uh, kind of like when the more recent um, Muppet Show came back and Kermit started dating another pig. Oh, man. Remember Kermit. that? Did, did you see any no. of that? Okay. Well, that <laughs> happened. That happened. No. All right. So... Anyways, all right. So I'm not going to press you on that, but I'm kind of curious if it's going that direction. So, well, there's only one way to find out. That's right. Keep on reading the book. The next damn chapter. So, <laughs> so they get to looking for so the crystal, and and the gist here is that she's kind of got to walk him through the process so that he understands well, well, how well, they found on, it. Okay, all right, I'm ready for that. Yet. Okay, fine. I'll reel that shit back. Yeah, because uh, she she wants him to verify she wants him to say hey you're still gonna pay me right and then we we learn about the shard clue submission contract and i thought it was funny because this also felt like a little bit of a throwback to the first book because he talks about the print was too fine to read without squinting and the text rolled on for several pages and it just reminded me of anorak's invitation and he's reading the will, and he's going really, really fast. He's, ah, forget it. It it would take too long to read, and sadly, I don't have much, that much time. Right. That's what that reminded me of, was the, the legalese and it being just too much. You know, my impression of this was different. I, I kind of had, really? had a flashback to when he's talking with Sorrento. I mean, granted, he doesn't like whip out this gargantuous contract with legalese, but it, it still felt like that shady, I'll give you a shitload of money if you'll just sell a little bit of your soul, just a little bit of your soul, right? I don't know if I see it that way. Uh, that's that's I mean, I fine, that... but I just kind of had a flash of that. And I'm not necessarily saying he's going down that road. Uh, I'm just saying it, it just felt very unparsival. Like, like maybe Parzival sort of retired from hunting and gunting 
and and now he you know is admitting to the fact that a younger brighter master in training padawan if you will is has found the first the first crystal but not just the first crystal but also uncovered uh, an additional hint that really would have helped to kind of solidify the hunt here and that's that yes, is the, the couplet which yeah which i thought uh, that was very interesting the the couplet but um uh, it was i don't i don't want to go there too quite yet but um i do see what you're talking about with this whole idea that you know pars was basically farming out the gunting and you know kind of like how ioi had the oology division and basically you know he put up this big reward and now he's got all these people that are you know the new generation of gunters to do all this work for him because clearly he's not able to he's not meeting the same level of gunterness that he had in the first book yeah by a long shot he would even you if know, even if he had, had even if he had had a lot of money I believe in the first book. The the perspective, the the way that the story laid it out felt very much like it would have been a sin, a cardinal gunter sin to not only rely on another gunter's help initially, initially, right? Because eventually they teamed up, but initially it would be like a cardinal sin, almost an insult to rely on another gunter's help, let alone pay somebody for a hint, for the help. Right. I, yeah. It, it, yeah. I mean, it's just um, if we're dealing with a different Parzival is, is really what it comes down to. And I'm not saying he's as evil as the Sorrento was in the first book, but it definitely feels like a switch in positions. It definitely feels like like he is he's traded up some of his principles. Yeah, it's it's. Um, well, well, when you don't have billions of dollars to offer, you you have you know, like that's what that's all you got is your principles. Yeah, that's true. Like the value goes up, but your hope that is, as a person gets fame and wealth, that the principles don't take a backseat. You kind of hope that they maintain their character, and I, I suppose it's true for anyone. Like they, this idea that that power corrupts. I don't think power corrupts. I think power makes us lazy, and being lazy makes us corrupt. And when you don't have, when you can't afford to be lazy, you got to work for it. I don't know. I'm going to roll with that. It doesn't yeah. feel exactly a hundred percent, but we'll roll with that. But um, so anyway, yeah. <laughs> so he's anxious to see what she's found, right? And I like how he's like, um, "The money's all yours, I promise." I mean, can you imagine somebody just? Can you imagine being offered a billion dollars? I don't care if it's like you know, thirty years from now, today, ten years ago. You know, just just to provide them a clue, a morsel, a nugget, a hint, it almost seems too good to be true. Like there's got to be a loophole. Like somebody's gonna rip it away from you. Yeah, like oh, like I didn't, you know, rub my belly and tap my head very well while I was doing it. So therefore, I don't get it. Right. But but Lohengrin's read the contract over and over and over and over again. So, and we had talked about it in the last chapter about how she hadn't told her friends. And one of the points of contention was why she wouldn't have talked with them about it uh, more directly or more deeply. 
and this could be it, that if she had talked to them more deeply about it, that it, she would be in breach of contract before even, you know, presenting it. Yeah. So, yes. So he, he confirms the fact that, yes, he will give her a billion dollars if it helps him find one of the seven shards. And that's, that is where the path becomes unfolded. Well, so we do we do have a reference here. I know there aren't many in this chapter, really, but there is a reference that I'm I'm sure you picked up on, but I will call it out when she's taught when when Logan says that she, that she's read the contract mm -hmm. a few thousand times. Sorry, I didn't mean to insult you. It's just that's a lot of zenny for me. Okay, I, I'm not familiar. It, I remember the word. Oh, I'm not familiar yeah. with the reference. Is that like okay. is that like so a Zork Zenny reference a, or something or or? No. So, um, and not that I know this, but this is you know I've looked this up. Did it's a shit. fictional in-game. Shut up. <laughs> it's a fictional in-game currency created by Capcom, which appear in many of their games, and such as the Mega Man franchise, the Breath of Fire series, and you'll like this one, hmm. Black Tiger. You see, th those were the games that I didn't play growing up. And I know it's, it'll be a gasp to maybe s some people listening, but, you know, those are games that I just didn't get into. Sure, but, like, this is, that's a but reference I, to Black Tiger, which was a big thing in the first book. I get it. Okay. Yeah, I totally missed on that, but that's cool. Well, I'm like, I know I've heard Zenny before. I'm like, what, like, what is that from? So I look it up, and I'm like, hey, it's a currency that was used in all these games, plus the game Black Tiger. Yay. Gotcha. So we're looking at we're looking at his vintage gaming magazines, his huge collection of Dungeons yeah. and Dragons modules that are on the shelves. Just just It sounds like a fun place to be if you you know, in this time frame. Yeah. Like I I'd have loved to have been over there. Like I kind of missed out on some of these things cuz you know, I was I was in what year? This is like 1985 that they were in, mm -hmm. or 1984, and I was four or five years old, so I wouldn't have been playing Dungeons and Dragons right. or reading magazines like that. But, man, and, and I never quite ever did that stuff, but I would have loved to have done that. Well, it was it reached a peak in the 80s, for sure. And again, I was a little young for that, too, but I got into it in the 90s. But but here we are in this in this in this place in the in 1986 and the part that i really like that that, that kind of comes up into the chapter is the, the place where we start which is the couplet are we cool to be kind of work into the couplet here yeah um let's do it and the fact that parzival did not know about the couplet and what's what's unfolding within these chapters is a, a different way of getting to know Kira. And that where Parzival was really challenged with trying to figure out Halliday, like Halliday was his obsession. His obsession isn't Kira. Like he's still thinking about how to figure this out as if he was hunting for clues from Halliday. But the fact of the matter is that these clues are centered around Kira. These clues are are going to be more discreet. They're going to be less obvious. They're going to require personal knowledge of their relationships. 
and and it seems that these are the kinds of things that aren't necessarily nestled into the Bible that he's been following, but rather he needs to like reach out and relook into other places. And and we come to this couplet, which is not presented unless you lay down what was what was the thing that you have to to lay down on the the, the headstone? A symbol mine, some sort of flower, I think. Mm-hmm. And then from the Lord of the Rings. Right. It's a Lord of the Rings. It's thing. a Lord of the Rings reference. Right. And to lay that on her grave then presents this couplet. So the whole idea of this couplet, right? Did that remind you of anything? Because I had something in mind that this made me think about. You know, all of the hints in the last book were very specific, right? They were they were very well presented. Um, are you thinking of the Pendergast clue? No. I'm just going to go ahead and say it because why not? This reminded me of the Andy Weir fanfic because that's in that story Lacero who you know who we all know is Sorrento goes to that planet gosh I forget what it's called but it was like where he was able to use the time machine Zemeckis and there was that that extra clue huh okay it's been a while remember? it's been a while since I've read it so I don't I remember reading it I don't remember the extra clue but I can see why it would remind you of that. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, I'm going to try to get it open here so I can quickly read it. I should have, I meant to get this all open. So, Cloud Cuckoo Land is the planet he goes to. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, needs to go to like this harmonic convergence thing and travels in time, which is. Also, something that's going on right now in this, in Ready Player Two, where they're trying to change the time of the simulation. And in the, in Lucero, after he changes the time, there are words that appear in the sky, and the booming voice of James Halliday read them through the heavens. You seek solutions to the gates, but know you what. But know you what reward awaits? Like Kirk, Scott, and Chekhov too, the Genesis is all for you. And so then he figured it out immediately. That bas- So basically what that did was that clued him into the idea that there was going to be a kill switch for the Oasis. Mm, but, okay. it was, but this was not part oh, of the regular right, competition. Right, because the Genesis so, machine basically reformatted the planet. Right. Yeah, so does it, this feels very similar to where he to this fanfic, where he's got to change the time frame, right, and then find this. Uh, but it's also talking about you know this couplet, which you you know gives you a clue that's not really like you you wouldn't necessarily need this to solve it, right? But no, but at least it, it tells it, you where to I, start. I, I, yeah, well, this is also, interestingly, the first, I guess, kind of hint that, that, it's a, that there's some sort of order for finding the shards. Right. Because it says the first shard lies in the siren's first den. 
So the question isn't where, but when. Whereas, bef- you know, I think up until now, just like, well, there are seven shards, you know, you can, you know, find them in any order, but this implies an order. Mm-hmm. And very much implies a period of time or a place in time. And and the place in time, as they've both acknowledged here, is is currently 86, which would have been before her being there. So there is that... I can I can see then why there would be this focus in because whenever you have clues like this, I would imagine that part of the storytelling is that you have to present a reason as to why a person would be motivated to find these obscure things and then put meaning to them. Right? It's it's very could otherwise be very random, but you know as we go through the chapter, what we realize is that we have these sort of elements that are sticking out. We've got a calendar that's dated for a three years into the future when there's a calendar already up on the wall. The fact that uh, the way that they stumbled across this, the fact that it wasn't mentioned uh, in any of the references, in any of the prior resources, mm-hmm. so it must have popped in after he won the egg. So that we do have this sort of connection of unusual elements to look out for, things that would have been different or that would not have been included. So whatever you think you know about the areas around these people, you got to re-explore that. you got to figure out what the difference is between now and before the egg was found as potentially part of this sleuthing. You know, how has the environment changed? And these little odd things that pop out. So I was kind of like, okay, well, that, that makes sense. Like if I, if I had to imagine myself going after this and I'm kind of tracking down the riddle, I would have come to the same conclusion which is, you know, it exists in the siren's first tenants, exists in her bedroom. That makes sense. That makes sense. But the period of time is often here. It says the question is when. So that leads you in the direction. I'm like, oh, okay, well, <clears throat> it makes sense then that she would want to look for a way to change the time of the place, that maybe there's an inn somewhere there. Um, it, so it, it, that this, this is very reminiscent of of the the puzzle solving that I really enjoyed in the first book. The difference being is that somebody else has already solved the puzzle. And in this book, we're walking through someone telling us how they solved the puzzle and how they came to it. We're not experiencing it ourselves. So it's still not very grand. I don't feel like I'm along for the ride. Although she is presenting it, it's being presented in a way that makes me feel like I'm on board. But at the same time, I'm not trying to sleuth this myself. Because the next stop is going to be, and this is the answer to that thing. Rather than trying to come to the answer, trying to sleuth it out. Like going through Latin, if you will, in the midst of class to figure out where that 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 D&D dungeon exists, potentially. So anyhow, so beyond that. This is what draws us to to the the discovery of the calendar. Yeah, and um I just sent you a message with one of the, with the artwork that's in the count that's on oh, the calendar. Oh, yeah, I had already looked it up. I'd looked up the book as well. Um the the Warrior it's Witch cool. of Hell. It's cool. Yeah, yeah. It's very indicative of the fantasy well, books of that of that period of time. It's just it's a neat reference. Yeah, yeah, the Boris Vallejo artwork. Mm-hmm. Very cool looking stuff. Maybe I'll post a link to these in the show notes. Just for everybody. Um 
I I really liked the way this unfolded. Like the idea of you had to you had to change the time frame, but you can't do it in a conventional way. So how do you do it? And I like this. This was a fun kind of clue to, or problem to solve. Yeah, and it's not unreasonable, right? You'd know if you're in 1986 no, and you'd stumble across a calendar, one that's not mentioned anywhere. That's a dead giveaway. The calendar itself is three years ahead. That's a dead giveaway. Now, you may have already tried to play with the calendar on the wall, and you knew that wasn't going to work. It didn't work out. But the fact that we have this thing that is out of time and out of place, um, again, it's it's reasonable. Like it When we're talking about buying somebody, potentially stumbling across some of these clues, you kind of have to say to yourself, okay, yeah, I, I can see how somebody could have stumbled across that. And she takes that calendar, I, or he takes the calendar, and opens it up, pops it on the wall, and boom, immediately it flips to, what was it, April? Yeah, April 1989, if I remember correctly. Right. And what I, what I liked about the description of it was that time was basically moving faster. It wasn't just that, like, you boom, it was 1989. And it just reminded me of the uh, old time travel movie, The Time Machine. With oh, yeah, Taylor, yeah, where he sits inside Wells the machine novel. and the environment around mm-hmm. him just starts to, you know, crumble. It's rebuilt. It crumbles again. But you see everything in high speed where day and night get blurred. Yeah, yeah, I'd imagine that as yeah. well. That was exactly what I was picturing. So, like, I appreciated that, creating that visualization for me. It, it, was, it was pretty cool. What I don't, well... What I didn't like, I guess, was that... Well, actually, we won't get there yet. I'll get to that. Okay. Um, I did try to look up... So they they end up in April 1989. So I was like, well, April 1989. What's Is there any significance to April 1989? So apparently, at least from a few different sources that I found... Th- in in April 1989, actually April 30th, 1989, if I remember correctly, the World Wide Web is first launched in the public domain by CERN scientist Tim Berners-Lee. Wow. Okay. That's fascinating. That's super fascinating. Well, the way to put that together, yeah, that has to have been done with some degree of intent there. That's fascinating. That can't be a coincidence. Perhaps I was doing a little bit of reading on like what that actually meant, and I was like, you know, talking about like the hypertext, you know, pages that you could load and all that, and I was like, oh my god, because like, apparently, like the internet existed in some form for much longer than that, but this was kind of just the protocol of like the hypertext stuff mm-hmm. and loading web pages. So I was like, oh, you know, like this is that's kind of you know how we ended up getting to the oasis you gotta start somewhere right so right pretty cool and so and the other thing that i noticed was the the, it says that when they get to april 1989 the time is 107 a.m okay so the only thing i could kind of like pull from that is that maybe that's a signifier of you know first shard of seven Total shards? I don't know. Oh, oh, that's clever. Wow, yes. Okay. I was wondering where the hell you were going with this. 
but but first shard of seven. That that freaking makes sense. That's also well nailed. That's pretty cool, actually. Um, I would totally buy that. So. <laughs> So we're in the room here, so, you know, it's so, the middle of the freaking night now, and... The the instinct would be to run over to yeah. the Barnett's house, right? Yeah, and that but was no. that's what he says. So what happens if we go over there? And she's like, well, we need something from here first. So now this is the part that I thought was a little bit of a... How would somebody How the hell do you get here? There's no hint in the clues that's like, you know... Bring this, you know, the cassette tape over to the Barnett's house well, and play this song. Okay, like, let's let's. You would ha- you would have to go through that and like think about it and try, you know basically go through a bunch of different. You'd have to try a thousand different things to get to there. Well, maybe I, I mean, don't know how you get to that. Well, let's 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 presume that you've already done the first clue and you're like, I wonder what's going on at her house. And when they go, and I know we're, we're going to jump back to the tape in a second, but if you could imagine just going over to her house and then noticing that there's only one light of of all the houses in the neighborhood, there's only one light on. And that would be the clue. That would be the clue potentially to the song uh, of the Smiths, which is there's a light that never I, goes out. Okay. And if you're familiar with the tape, as Parzival was, so this is fairly common knowledge to an extent, um, that that was what was her favorite song. That 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 should have been like, yeah, it was her favorite song, and it should have been a hint of some sort. Like I could see that being the hint. Now, if you went in the house, you wouldn't see anything because you didn't have the tape with you. You didn't play the song. But if you knew the song and you knew the song was on the tape and you knew the tape was back at Og's place, then I could see that that being the path. Right. That that's how I would imagine me pursuing this. Because otherwise, how the hell would you know to bring the tape? You wouldn't. So there's a clear yeah, and I, present hint. I was wondering if like the fact that it was the only light on in the entire simulation, if that was how you drew the you know, or connected the dots. So but they never really explained like how Lowengrin figured out the tape thing. Which right. happened to be track seven on side A. Oh yeah, and and that's an interesting hint there as well. So that might be where seven starts to arise. Kind of points you in the right direction. Tells you that you're headed in the right direction. We're seeing, we are seeing some references to seven. Although all the references to seven that the Parzival have tried so far have come up bupkis, right? But we're starting to see hints of that now. So the fact that she knew to get the tape. And take it out of the tape deck, and and then go over to Lucasia's old house, and then go up to the room and pop that in, and play that track. Uh, and we might be jumping ahead here, Smidge. So pull me back if we are a little bit. The, yeah. So I I did find it interesting, I guess that this song was her favorite song. Mm-hmm. Not that like, you know, it's perfectly fine. That's her favorite song, but there were, I guess it was a weird kind of irony that this song is talks very much about dying in a car accident. This is a Morrissey song. Okay. This is the Smiths. I mean, but that's how Kira dies. I'm sorry. What? 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Kira died in a car accident. <gasps> wow. Well, what a great wraparound. Holy shit, you're pulling it out from everywhere, dude. Oh, my God. Because I listened to this song, and I, I don't like Morrissey. I don't like the Smiths. I mean, I don't like them. I don't mean I don't really? like them I personally. Like I, I just, I, the, the music never appealed to me. Like, I had friends that just absolutely loved Morrissey, right? And And I listened to it, and I was like, I don't get it. I'm not interested. Like they're f- other than like Trouble in the Streets of London, but only because it's been referenced in some movies. Beyond that, I just didn't dig it. In you fact, panic. Oh God! See, there you go. See, you I know. I know. I, I care so damn little that I can't even get the name right. <laughs> but but to that point, though, and it's funny that we're on this chapter just this week. There was an article about uh, Morrissey's response to to a Simpsons episode. That that did like a, a spoof on him, where he's like overweight and and still doing concerts and 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 eating you know a meat filled sandwich, that sort of thing, which is you know very much not he's 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 vegan or vegetarian, one of the two, um, and adamant about that, and and he had kind of a written response that what does he say specifically? Uh, it was uh, posted on the nineteenth, and um, it was titled "Hello Hell." And he quote said, the hatred shown towards me from the creators of The Simpsons is obviously a taunting lawsuit, but one that requires more funding than I could possibly muster in order to make a challenge. He, uh, he says of it that, um, that, quote, writing for The Simpsons evidently requires only complete ignorance. So I kind of thought, you know, it's, it's kind of poignant. We're reading this chapter. Couldn't he just Morrissey, Morrissey laugh comes at a up. joke? <laughs> It's not very flattering. Like he even goes on to say, "Look, SNL nails it as far as satire is concerned, and there are a couple other studios satire pretty well." But you know, this is just straight up insulting. And I'll tell you what. Here, I'll just copy the link for you. Maybe we put this up on the website. And I mean, you tell me if if you look at just even just the picture, would you consider that to be satire or just really straight up just freaking insulting? Okay, so that's not very flattering. <laughs> not fucking flattering. It's, like, it's not nice, really. <laughs> but like, that's what they do. Like, Jesus, get over it. Like, you've you brought more attention to it by actually, like, mentioning it again. Yeah, you know, it, it, and it's interesting because he quotes here. He says, "You're especially despised if your music affects people in a strong and beautiful way, since music is no longer required to." In fact, the worst thing you can do in 2021 is to lend a bit of strength to the lives of others. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, like, if you really felt this way, then why would you even be insulted? You should be, like, you know, flattered almost to an extent. You know, it, you know, if I'm, if I'm somebody that you still feel you need to take target at, then I'm occupying a space in your mind, regardless of whether or not you like it. And you're welcome. Right. He could have turned this into a joke, but instead he was like, yes, you know, only those that produce beautiful music get targeted the worst. 
as if to say, well, my music's beautiful, so of course I'm being targeted. I don't know. It just came across very, yeah. very, it, aren't it, I special? Yeah. Yeah, in some ways it's like when you get this kind of like parody of yourself, mm -hmm. the best thing to do is just lean into it and not try to fight it. Like, have a laugh. Don't take it so seriously. Yeah, but but granted, though, like, you know, the episode was almost dedicated to trouncing him and trouncing the Smiths. So, I, again, I, okay. I don't know if that's a flattering thing or I, I would take it differently, maybe. But regardless of the fact, I was not into the Smiths ever. Um, and not for any personal reason, just the, the music never did anything for me. But here, we, we I got into them for a little while. For a little while, was it a phase for you? That wasn't really a phase, but like there, I spent some time kind of exploring their catalog and put some things into my regular rotation of music, and that's kind of was it like a college phase for you? It. You're just kind of no, experimenting it was way after college. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little, no. little college experimentation with the Smiths. That's all it was. Now, I forget how I. I stumbled into listening to them more. Um, gosh, I wish I could remember. But I just I just started listening to them. You know, I, I don't know if it was on Spotify or whatever. And just, it's like, okay. Some of it's pretty good. Some of it I could care less about. But, you know, wasn't terrible. Here's, I still listen, to, still listen to it every now and then. Here's another thing that I thought was interesting. Because as they go into her room, with the tape, because we've, we've gone down the street now, we have tape in hand. We recognize that the light is the, in her bedroom, is the only light on in the neighborhood. They, they, they talk about, for a paragraph or two, about how no one was allowed in her room. You know, that it was not allowed. And, and this is the reason why the, the peeps that she played with, they weren't able to get any, give any detail, because nobody had any detail as to what her room looked like. So he's assuming... But this is what Halliday imagined the room to be like, the kinds of things that you might see. And, you know, the more I think about this, the more I feel like this was not a Halliday Easter egg or a series of Halliday Easter eggs. The more I think about this, the more I think that that Og put this in the system and that this is Og's contest. This is Og's way of potentially transferring power away from maybe whom he perceives to be a dangerous holder. And that only somebody who can find the appreciation and love that he found in Kira can appreciate the lives of the people who are in and plugged into the system as being delicate. Now, I'm just, again, shooting from the hip here, but my feeling is that maybe the reason why Og and Kira connected so well is because he was able to cross boundaries that Halliday was not allowed to cross, and one of them was being able to go into her room. Well, as far as we know, he's he never did go in that room. We don't know. That's true. But I'm, now, I'm just I'm kind now of, that being said, I'm making a guess. You already know the answer. Teenagers have a way. Teenagers always have a way. Teenagers have a way, right? Right. So I'm, yeah. I'm just. They, did they mention anything like a tree that he could have climbed outside her bedroom window? No. Um. But when they came up to the house and the window with the light and the fact that they had a tape deck in their hands, I had kind of a say anything moment. You know, mm. where John Cusick's character is holding up a tape deck over his head, 
and it's playing in your eyes. And, you know, the girl that he is adoring over comes to her bedroom window, which is the lit. Anyways, that that just kind of hit me. She doesn't do that. No, no. She doesn't do that in that scene. I'm sorry, what? She doesn't come to the room? She doesn't do that in that scene. She She doesn't come to the window? Maybe that's how how I wanted to remember it. It's been a little while. Maybe. I'm sorry I crushed it for you. Killing me here. But anyhow, it just kind of had it kind of moved in the direction of that feel. Yeah. Well, it was the choice of posters on the wall. I thought was uh, that seems very Kira like. Dark Crystal, of course. Mm-hmm. Last Unicorn, Purple Rain, and the Smiths. Did you ever watch the Last Unicorn? I don't know. Um, Last Unicorn was a, a, a an anime. I'm not saying it's not a cartoon, more along the lines of an anime. But the gist was here that look you have up. literally the last unicorn is being hunted, and if I remember rightly, this sort of fumbling wizard basically, you know, says you know whatever form whatever needs to happen needs to happen. Some shit like that. It has been literally thirty years since I've seen this, and she ends up turning into a human, and it's her and some other gal, and and this wizardy boy, and they've got a quest to this castle to do something that brings the unicorns in from the ocean. Something along those lines. Anyhow, I hated that cartoon. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, I'm seeing the pictures <laughs> on hated the that fucking tubes. cartoon. I I just there's like the characters all these big noses and stuff. Yeah, it's very. If you ever like watched uh, the original cartoon Hobbit, it very much had that feel. You know, where that's sort okay. of exaggerated in a, in a weird um, trollish sort of look. But, yeah, troll. That's that's kind of what they look like. Yeah, it's, but it just it just you know like your average folks are kind of troll looking. The unicorn girl just you know has the soft and and subtle features, and then the evil people are very you know sharp cut you know jawline nose kind of thing. So it 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 I hated that cartoon so much because they played it all the time on HBO. And it was often the only thing that was on. Like you'd switch between the five or six other channels that you had. And that was the only damn thing on. And it was better than nothing. It was better than the news. But only only barely so much better than the news. Anyways. I don't know if I've ever seen this. Really? Well, that might be something we need to watch. It looks familiar. But I don't know if I've ever seen it. Well, maybe we need to add that to our list. I mean, I know it's not in the original compendium of media, but that it's mentioned here, you know, makes it something we might want to consider. Anyhow, moving on. So, yeah, I mean, they kind of have an idea of what's in her room. So... They could infer it. Yeah, at least. Or maybe somebody was in a tree, you know, watching from a tree into somebody's bedroom window from, say, across the street. I'll I'll look back to the future. I was just going to say, he's a peeping Tom. (laughs) <laughs> um, you know, we, boys do obsess, so it, yeah, I could see it, uh, and maybe that's as much as anyone could see from a a heightened tree advantage outside. But okay, so we're in the room, and we put the tape in. Fast forward it. Well, not not yet, not yet. <sighs> we still we 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 spend some time learning a little bit about Kira. We talk about her artwork, okay, her pixel art. Oh, right, right, right. Which was kind of cool because I, I, I kind of related a little bit to the whole 
copying pixels onto graph paper thing because I'm way way back in our Apple II era. I remember like taking one of the Nintendo magazines that had a you know a screenshot so to speak of Mike Tyson from Mike Tyson's Punch Out, and I remember using like Apple Paint or whatever it was and like copying the pixels to redraw Mike Tyson. Right. From Mike Tyson's punch out. And I was very annoyed because we had two copies of that Mac Paint program. One that wouldn't save files and one that did. Mm-hmm. And I had opened it with the one that didn't save files. So I couldn't save the file or print it or anything. And I was very upset about that. I obviously I have, you know, still haven't gone over it. I like the fact that that in, in describing the items in the room, one of the things was a TRS eighty. As as the Well, no, it was the Dragon the Dragon sixty four. The Dragon sixty four? The Dragon sixty four? It was the Brit the the British version that was compatible with the TRS eighty. Okay. And that and then Halliday thought that well, like, they have like compatible the... computers, so so we're compatible. Womp womp womp. <laughs> but not so much. And I remember my, that wasn't my first computer, but it was computers that were pretty common in this classroom at the time. Like there was a, you know, a, a separate computer building that had what we called trash eighties. But yeah, yeah. And then of course the using the, the graph paper, like the dot matrix printout paper, right? Very wide paper with the the lines. And being able to use that to to do artwork and whatnot on right? that was pretty common for me in the eighties as well. So we also learned that she had an Iowa stereo system, or at least you know that's what they thought she had. And I remember having an Iowa five CD disc changer back in the day. I it struck a chord with me. I I I I don't even remember that. So the, the brand? I don't even remember the brand. No, I had one. I had an Iowa. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen. I don't think I saw that name out, outside the '90s. In Iowa, Iowa, A I W A. Yeah, no, no, I didn't. It's been such a long time. I don't even remember the brand. Mm. But then she hits the eject button, and Parzival walks over and puts in Lucasia's mix into the tape deck. And of course, the first side's playing Jesse's Girl by Rick Springfield. But you know how appropriate is that song? Oh my God. It's like this should be obvious. Why am I missing all of this? Yeah. Why am How I missing miss this? That? Like I just, I just, I didn't even pay attention to it. But shit, you're right. How I wish Shall I had Jesse's girl. Oh my god. Jesse is a friend. Yeah, I know he's been a good friend of mine. But lately something's changed. That ain't hard to define. Jesse's got himself a girl, and I want to make her mine. Oh. Oh my. It's like god. reading a book about Og and how it's it's almost as if it's almost as if the songs here are actually predicting the future kind of yeah if these were the songs on the tape then it would have literally been predicting the future kind of like well i don't know here's the the thing though these may not have been the songs on the tape but these are the songs on what holiday created well, that's fine, but how they both tape. they both got a copy of the same tape. So he would have known. They they said she made two copies. She made one for both of them. Yes. But what I'm saying is that like 
this contest, this thing, or this simulation of this game, like the actual track listing of that tape was never made public except for that one song that was on it that we know, which is the the Smith song. Right. So the fact that Jesse's girl is on this tape <laughs> may not necessarily have been what it was back when the tape was originally made, but it might have been uh, what they imagined. You know, maybe the imagined or like, you know, the, I wanted this message to be on this tape for the people that go through this contest. Uh, I get it. Okay. So in other words, while they, they, in lieu of knowing the real songs, which I would imagine that whoever created this would have known the real songs, would have remembered the real songs, even if they weren't sure. written down anywhere. So I, I, I doubt truly that this is an accident. And I love the fact that you picked up on that reference, that the message of that song being very much what they all end up going through. Damn, damn, I'm I'm slacking. Oh, I feel like Parzival. Oh, I know, man. It's horrible. Anyways, it's just, I, I promise I'll do better next chapter. But uh, I still feel very much that um, that we're potentially looking at, we're potentially looking at Og's eggs here, the Og's contest, because it does have a different flavor. And rather than focusing on Og, it focuses on the person that he loves. And agreeably, Halliday loved her too, right? You know, per storyline here. But I'm wondering if there aren't details um, that are more close to the heart for Og than would have been for Halliday. Because Halliday was all about Halliday. He was focused on himself. Um, and I wonder also because... So, so, go ahead. So you're saying that because it seems like the contest thus far requires a more intimate knowledge of Kira that it couldn't be Halliday? Not that it couldn't be, because we've come up with reasons about how, you know, some of the stuff could have been fabricated. And in fact, the story kind of gives us, it very plainly says that no one was allowed into the room, which is the reason why nobody knew the artifacts in her room. So maybe this is just what was imagined. There's the assumption that Halliday created this, uh, and that maybe Halliday just made up what could possibly have been in there based on you know, things that he knew about her outside of the room, right? Like, for example, the pixel art. They they knew about that after she started doing art in 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 the Oasis. So that's all well and good, but it feels as though that's a red herring. It feels like 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 it's trying to draw an assumption for us that it'll eventually whip us in a different direction and and will uncover potentially a, a a different owner to this contest. That's my, that's my prediction. I make predictions in every one of our recordings here, or every one of our episodes. So that's, that's kind of where my head's going this chapter. I feel very much like, like maybe this is Og's hand that's controlling this contest. And it would very much make sense that, um, you know, based on his interaction with Og, the relationship he's had with Og, the issues that Og has had with him trying to to pursue the path that he has, that, you know, that, that when this headset went out to a certain extent, to a certain level, that that triggered the contest to potentially overthrow Parzival's power and going down a path that Og is, doesn't agree with. That's my guess. That's my guess. Don't say anything. I won't. All Get right. Your sealed. Well, so they play the song. 
they get to the part where he just repeats over and over again, there is a light and it never goes out. And the wooden jewelry box opens up with the necklace floating. Uh, it was silver with a blue gemstone. And Z recognized it from the one Kira was wearing at her 1989 Middletown High School yearbook photo. So it. let me just and... stop real quickly. Just stop real quickly here. It reads that Og gave this necklace to her the first time he told her he was in love with her. So she had this necklace in 1989 when she when created mm-hmm. these tapes and sent it out to both of them. You know, it, it, again, it's, it's interesting how this revolves around more Og's interaction with her and focused on her. Yeah, but... but... It was in her yearbook photo, and she probably wore it, so it would have been recognized by anybody in that group. Well, right, that's true. Well, sure, recognized by that group, and obviously was a part of the autobiography, right? It's just it's it's again interesting that we're we're talking about the period of time where where that love was spurned. We know that you know if if the necklace was during this period of time that this is before she went back to London, and Og had already sort of kind of dished his heart. Oh. Made that first move, and again, maybe Og would have been uh, potentially more privy to the intimate parts of her life. For example, like the details of her bedroom. Maybe, and you know, sure he knows a lot of details about her. And and what here's another thing: is that that this might have also been hidden from Halliday. I mean, sure, Halliday probably knew a lot about the system, a lot about the planets and how they were set up. But you know, he wasn't going to know everything. This 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 particular world was created early on, and for Og to have gone in there and created a version, and then hidden it behind a time shift, means that Halliday may not have even known it was there. Possibly. I, I know I'm I'm beating on this horse, but that's just kind of where I feel like a, the hints are are pointing me in this direction. Well, I I'm always one for hearing predictions from the point of view of somebody who hasn't read it or at least hasn't read the whole thing yet i'm trying to see if any of the notes that i took you would be a pain in the ass to play uh, poker with you know that really yeah i can't i can't i can't uh, i just looking at you i can't i can't get any tells i can't i can't you know you're not you're not giving anything away you're wearing the glasses you know you've got your head behind your cards i just i can't well, pick up on you're I, not you're I, not I, shifting your face in any way when i make these predictions it it's being ugly. It's you know it happens. Oh, so anyway, so I'm I'm looking at the notes that I took back when I finished reading this chapter. I'm trying to see if there's anything there that's worth repeating. Yeah, because we reached the end of the chapter. There it was at long last, one of the seven shards of the siren's soul, and then boom, you know we're we're dropped. I am once again dropped into the hell of not being able to read the next chapter. Mm. So I had one note here. That I that I thought was I a couple notes here. One that I don't think is really worth repeating. But the second note that I had here was that this the shard quest helps affirm in my mind that Halliday may have had an AI version of himself helping him program these quests. And I wrote that because I and you've heard me question this before. I don't. I really felt like he didn't have enough time to program the original contest, let alone the the shard quest like that's a lot of stuff going on for somebody who 
didn't have much time left. Well, so I I was running on the theory that Halliday used an like an AI version of himself to help program the quest. Well, we know that. I mean, the first book emphasized the fact that he didn't have much time left, but that was time left at the end of his life, right? We don't Wait, really know. He pr- we don't know how much time it took to program any of this. We, we can't really tell how much time it took to do any of this um, or that it would have taken longer or that something would have had to continue programming it after the fact. Because as we've already talked about, he had enough time to make the Oasis. He had enough time to make the contest. And, and on top of that, he had enough time to make the O&I. And and then all the software that supports that. Well, the, but yeah, but the the O and I would have been before you know, his death sentence. That's exactly what I'm getting at. Is that evidently he had enough time to do all of that before he died? Surely he could he could have he could have. But he didn't start the contest until he knew he was dying. Um, do we know that for sure? We know Pretty he did. Sure. We know he didn't announce it until he till he died. But, you know. We don't know when he started it. We just know that he announced it after his death, post-mortem. That's all. Have I been working under the wrong presumption that, like, maybe he didn't start working on the contest? Huh. Yeah. I'm I mean, I have to, like, look back at the book to see. I was, I kept thinking that once he knew he was dying, once he was diagnosed, that he started working on the contest. I wonder. Maybe, I but it might have taken, it might have taken years to. To for for him to get to the place where he ended up dying. I mean, but I I, I get what you're I, saying there saying, is that if only he only yeah. had like three years to do the contest, he may have barely made it to the wire for just his contest, and that he wouldn't have had a lot of time to squeeze in another contest. I mean, I mean, I mean, he said in Anrak's invitation that he sadly doesn't have enough time to even read the legalese of his oh that's and testament. That's just him being <laughs> you know. That's just him being dramatic, dramatic flair for the drama. Yeah. Oh, forget this. I don't have the time for it. And neither do you. You know, it's just, you know, this is legal garbage, disdain for legalese. Who doesn't have that say for like a lawyer? Right. I mean, it's just kind of like, you know, that's just that's just the gobbledygook that they forced me to put on a piece of paper. Let's just toss this aside and and, and get. To, yeah, this is just him being dramatic, I would imagine. So. So, but, you know, to your point, and maybe that just kind of buffs the argument here that, that maybe it isn't his contest. Yeah, I, I was starting to wonder that, I think, about this time was either he was getting helped by this AI version or maybe it was like what eventually was the ghost of Halliday and the machine that we were wondering about at the end of the first book. I I was having lots of thoughts because I wanted to, like... Wanted to guess what it was, and like thinking really hard, like what could it be? What could it be? And like that's where I was going. Yeah, I get you. Yeah, I, I think that when we talk about the focus of the contest, Halliday wanted people to be in love with him. He wanted to find somebody who was worthy to be an heir to his throne, and thus he wanted to ensure through the contest that that the person who won the contest was very much like him which means that it would be very focused on him. He would be very self-centered. But this contest is not self-centered. If anything, this is very divergent from Halliday and, and is reaching into realms now that feel just outside of Halliday's understanding and reach. And when you're really in love with somebody, your world revolves 
you you become a, you become a a moon in the orbit of a planet, and you know that that planet becomes your center. And in this case, Kira is someone's center. And while she might have been Halliday's um, not so secret interest, love interest, the real relationship, you know, the real center of someone's universe would have been would have been Og being the moon to her Earth, if you will. Um, and then him having to suffer the pains of of her having passed away, as she did. Like in the Smith song, oh, I can't believe you figured that out. That's amazing. Well, and I listened I mean, to the damn the, song the, before this. The, the the difference is is that in the song, like they would have both died in this accident, you know, hitting a double decker bus. <laughs> That's what the song's ten, about. I just and a ten ton truck. <laughs> yeah. So the 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 lyrics go, and if a double decker bus crashes in crashes into us to die by your side is such a heavenly way to die and if a 10 ton truck kills the both of us to die by your side while well, the pleasure the privilege is mine and and that is uh, much as i don't like the smiths i don't hate them but i just don't have a taste for them uh, as much as i do not like the song i, I could imagine somebody who adores someone uh saying that saying that you know the the if if you're going to have last moments that you can have last moments together because of how rare that, that kind of that moment or that experience could be. So I you, you kind of get that, that this is somebody who, who yeah. is in absolute adoration up into death of this person. If you want a song um, that's really gut wrenching about a, you know, a car accident and like, you know, losing a love the, the song last kiss Oh, the one that um, Pro Jam covered. Mm, okay. Oof. No, that no, one. I have no interest in that. Actually, I. Mm-mm. Yeah. Just don't. <laughs> well, we've we've reached the end of the chapter, and I'm excited to move on to the next one. Any words? Any parting words? Anything I should consider? Any hints before I move into the next chapter? Well, hints. I can't give you any hints, but the the theme of this book is the number seven, and the next chapter is chapter seven. So, we, you know, chapter five introduces us to the low five. Oh, shit. And yeah. chapter seven is the seventh chapter. So do you have any thoughts on what that might mean for the book? Not a clue, man. Maybe Are nothing? you kidding? I missed like nearly every reference in this damn chapter and not, not, for, not for trying. No clue. No clue. Um, I don't feel like it's just going to be a simple situation where he whips out his iPad and then goes, billion dollars. Ka-ching! I mean, I'm sure that she's going to get her money. Like, I don't think he's going to be so much of a dick as to not give her the money. Um, But I feel like this isn't the last that we've heard of the low five. And I hope it's not, because from the little bit of back-and-forth conversation— there is that flavor again of dialogue and and one of the biggest things i'm a fan of in movies is really decent dialogue i mean not shit that just carries the plot forward but shit that just gives you a moment to revel in the relationship we're talking about like the heart of what a good kevin smith movie is and it focuses focuses in on dialogue and and gaining you to understand the characters in the film um, 
So I hope that there's more of that. I hope there's more of that. Time will tell. And I'm sure as soon as we're done recording, you're going to go read chapter seven. In five more minutes. So with that said, are we good to close this up? Shut the page uh, on this chapter? Did we miss anything? No, I think that's that's all my notes on it. Um, I It was nice to feel like a, a little bit more of a gunter again mm -hmm. with this chapter. So put on, put on uh, the sleuthing yeah. hat a bit, start to really dig into it. Cause up until this point, I've been forced to meet, be, I've been forced to feel clueless. And when you're forced to feel clueless for five, six chapters, um, yeah, that feels kind of lame. So I'm, I'm glad that it's starting to get picking up. I, I realize now as, as I've, barely read some of the comments on the social media forums where they said it starts off a little slow and then it picks up. I feel like this is the pickup point. Yeah, it, it it definitely starts very slow. So if you thought we weren't moving slow, you will see that it is not, that it is in fact very slow. Yeah. And it, do, it does kind of ramp up a bit. And I'm excited to see your response to each chapter moving forward. Me too. So with that said, until the next chapter, this is Chris. And this is and Aaron. we will catch you on the next episode. Thank you. See you.